I'm Alan Farsfeld. This is episode four of the Urban Astronomer Podcast's third season. And we're late again. I don't know what to say to those of you who've been patiently waiting for the next episode, so I'll skip the excuses and just dive right into it. A few weeks ago, the Urban Astronomer podcast was highlighted on Podcast Insider, which is the official podcast of Blueberry, who run a podcast hosting platform and who make the PowerPress podcasting plugin for WordPress, which is what I use to host this show. The software is very complete, fully complies with podcasting standards, and integrates seamlessly with major directories like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and so on. And it's free. The hosting service is not free, but then you don't have to worry about any of the technical aspects of hosting your own show. You just pay your subscription, create and upload your content, and all the technical magic is taken care of for you. Now, personally, I prefer the hands-on approach, but I'm that special kind of nerd for whom that is the only option. I suspect that most podcasters would really not want to have to worry about keeping servers working so that they can focus on their show. Anyway, we had a great conversation, and one of the things that came up was the difference in the skies that Todd and I enjoy. He's an American, so lives on the northern skies while I'm in South Africa, and I get the other side. I would have liked to go on in a bit more detail about how this actually works, about why there's an overlap between what he sees and what I see, but the conversation moved on so I didn't get to explore that topic. Which is fine, because I have my own show and I'm going to use it to talk about that right now. So, the question we're answering is, what is the difference between Northern and Southern Hemisphere skies? And the first thing to bear in mind is that there isn't really such a thing as a northern sky or a southern sky. There is a whole spectrum of different skies based on where we're observing from. And those terms are just convenient boxes that we can choose from, which are kind of useful to a lot of people, but which are actually rather meaningless to many others. The whole thing is a natural consequence of living on a spherical planet which orbits a nearby star. And that has three effects on our view of the universe as a whole. So the first and most obvious effect is that it is hard to see stars when the sun is up. Sunlight is so bright that our eyes have to really shut down and block out most of the incoming light just to avoid damaging the sensitive retina with all that electromagnetic energy. So when the sun is up, those of us with properly functioning eyes get a beautifully lit view of the world around us. But the basic physics of how all cameras work, including our eyes, mean that while we can clearly see sunlit regions, shadows are dark and hard to penetrate, and even less brightly lit things, like the stars in the sky, are simply below the threshold of what our eyes can detect under those conditions. By the way, if you've ever wondered why you can't see stars in photographs taken on the moon or by astronauts orbiting the Earth, that's why. The camera is set for sunlit conditions, which means that it has to block out so much light that the stars are simply too faint to show up. Of course, there's also the problem of having a nice, thick, breathable atmosphere, which scatters some of the higher-energy photons coming from the sun, which is what makes the sky blue. It's actually glowing in the light of the blue photons which bounce off individual air molecules, so that even if your eyes were not set for daylight, you still wouldn't see the stars. So thanks to daylight, you only see stars for half of the Earth's rotational period, when the sun is below the horizon and it is night time. The second most obvious effect is that the Earth itself blocks off fully half of the universe from view. Go outside at night and look upwards and you'll see that half. Look downwards where the other half should be and you just see dirt. So if the Earth was a rogue planet floating through the universe unattached to any star, 
We could get around this by simply waiting for its rotation to carry us around to the other side, and then we would see the rest of the stars. But because we are orbiting a star, that hidden half remains hidden in the sun's glare. But the third effect works in our favour. Orbiting the sun means that after six months we're on the other side of the sun, which from here on the ground means that the sun seems to be on the other side of the sky. That hidden half of the universe is now revealed, and the part that we could see before is now invisible. And every day, as the Earth moves slightly less than one degree around the circle of our orbit, the visible portion of the universe also adjusts by almost one degree. And so our view of the universe gradually rotates one day at a time, taking a full year to complete the cycle. So all of that right there is some of the very fundamental basics of observational astronomy. It's the lecture that you struggle to keep awake through when studying astronomy at university. But it still doesn't explain the difference between northern and southern skies. Which is fine, we're getting there. So I just said how the Earth itself blocks our view of half the universe. And as we move along with its rotation, that view shifts. This is pretty intuitive stuff, and if you think laterally about it, it's the exact same explanation that we learn as children for why we have day and night. But now take a moment to think what happens if you stand on the North Pole. In fact, let's simplify things even more by pretending that the Sun is not a factor. You've got magic eyes that can see the stars through the glare of the Sun. Because for now, the stars are all we're worried about. What would your view of the stars look like over the course of 24 hours if you sat on the North Pole and just watched? Well, they would simply rotate in a big circle above you. You could go outside right now and sit in a swivel chair and look up and have a friend spin you around and it would look exactly the same, except for the speed, because in a very real and practical way that is exactly what's happening. The Earth rotates beneath you, you turn one full circle, and the stars appear to wheel around above you. And that's all very cool, but it also means that you don't get to see different stars as the Earth rotates. You see one half of the universe, what we call the northern half, for no other reason than that it's what you can see from the North Pole, and that's all you'll ever see, no matter what point in the Earth's rotation you look upwards. Now let's go to the South Pole and repeat the experiment. Well, it's exactly the same, except that you see a completely different set of stars, those from the southern half of the universe, and the stars seem to rotate around you in the opposite direction because you're now upside down. So at this point, I could just wrap up and leave it at that. That's the north sky, this is the south sky, isn't that fascinating and thank you for listening. But it's not really enough because there's a very significant third possibility. What if you're sitting exactly on the equator? Well, now your view of the sky still covers half the universe, but it's a different slice. You're not cutting off the north of the south, but half of each. And now, instead of the stars circling around the sky, always keeping their same heights above the horizon, now they all rise and set like the sun, each sticking to a fixed declination. So, if a star rises at a point on the horizon uh, 10 degrees from due north, it will stay 10 degrees from the northern point on the horizon. At its highest point, it will be 10 degrees above the due north point. And when it sets, it will be 10 degrees away from due north, but on the other side. And every star will follow its own track in the same way. Over 24 hours, you'll see the entire sky, so that to somebody on the equator, there is no northern or southern sky, because it's all visible, if they're patient enough to wait. So, those are the two special cases standing on the equator, and standing on one of the poles. 
In reality though, almost everybody on Earth is somewhere between those extremes, and so our view is also somewhere between them. So let's go to the North Pole, do that thing where you watch the stars move in big horizontal circles, and we travel a few hundred kilometers to the south and repeat the experiment. The view looks pretty much the same, but there is a subtle change. You see, as we've moved, the curvature of the Earth beneath us has changed our direction slightly. When we look upwards, we're not looking in the same direction as we were before. Up, in our new location, is now a few degrees off from what up means at the pole, and that means that our slice of the sky is slightly offset from the portion of sky that we saw at the pole. It's only a small difference, but it's there. The stars are still moving in big circles, but those circles are now at a slight angle of a few degrees. Instead of staying exactly parallel to the horizon, they now go a little bit higher and then a little bit lower, and then back to where they started over the course of an evening. And that means that the stars that are furthest south, the ones that were the very lowest in the sky, they now dip below the horizon for a few hours. And when they reappear, you get to see a few more stars for a little while that had previously been below the horizon. Which stars? Well, that depends on the time of year because of the effects of us orbiting around the sun, which I mentioned earlier. Now, if we pack up and move further south, this effect gets more pronounced. The section of stars which are always visible and which can be observed to move in big slow circles against the sky gets smaller and smaller until eventually only the very center of that circle is visible, exactly on the horizon. And the section which now rises and sets like the sun gets larger and larger until it's all setting and rising. And at this point we're on the equator. And if we keep on moving, the stars on the southern side get their chance to move in circles that never sets, and more and more northern stars vanish permanently below the horizon until eventually we get to the South Pole. Incidentally, we have a word for stars which never set, and we call them circumpolar. As you now know, the list of stars which are circumpolar depends on how far you are from the equator, which we measure as your latitude. And if you're one of these modern kids, your latitude is the first number in your GPS coordinates. So that's basically it. But now I have to go and spoil everything by admitting that this is in fact not very accurate. In physics, we like to make our jobs easier by simplifying things. There's an old joke that if you ask a physicist to calculate how many cows can fit in a field, he'll start by saying, assume a spherical cow, because it's really hard to calculate the exact amount of space that cows need with their complicated shapes that have legs and horns and things. But spheres are easy. And even though the sphere answer won't be very accurate, it will at least be good enough to get a rough idea of what the answer should look like. And You'd be surprised at how often those rough answers end up being good enough to be useful. So I've described a perfect simplified version of the actual system that we actually live in. And I'm not talking about that bit where we pretended that we can see stars through daylight either because that didn't actually have anything to do with how things move and where they are in the sky. No, no the main problem is that the Earth's rotation is not exactly in line with its orbits around the Earth but is actually tilted by 23 point something degrees. This is a really big deal because it means that we get seasons in which the north and south hemispheres are heated by the sun differently, and that uneven heating is an important driver in our weather patterns. It also means that the situations I've described, uh, where you sit somewhere and watch the skies over 24 hours, it doesn't account for the sun, which seems to drift north and south in our skies over the course of the year, as our changing position in our orbit brings us different views.
the planets, the moon, comets, and other assorted solar system debris, they all have their own similar deviations and for similar reasons. But if you only look at the stars, then what I've described pretty much holds true. So now that I've spent almost this entire segment explaining why we have different views, let's take a moment to talk about what those differences might be. So first and most obviously, each hemisphere has its own constellations, and the further you are from the equator, the fewer of them you'll ever get a chance to see. Many famous northern hemisphere constellations are actually quite close to the pole, so they're not visible at all to most southern hemisphere observers. I've never in my life, for example, seen uh, Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, Andromeda, or the Pole Star, or many others. The constellations of the Zodiac, which are all pretty close to the ecliptic, are visible to me because the ecliptic corresponds to the Earth's equator and is technically visible from anywhere on Earth. I say technically because unless you are in a truly exceptional observing environment, you can't really see stuff that's very close to the horizon. You're looking through so much atmosphere at that shallow angle that any dust or clouds or pollution it makes the air very hard to see through, and so only the brightest stars and planets show up. In the southern hemisphere, we are very lucky that our position in the galaxy and the angles of our orbits compared to the shape of the galaxy mean that we get many of the very best deep sky objects to look at. You see, the very center of the Milky Way galaxy, that big bulgy bit in the middle of it all which conceals a supermassive black hole, is in the constellation of Sagittarius, which is south of the ecliptic. For northern hemisphere viewers, that means it's only ever low down in the sky, while we in the south get to see it pass directly overhead, where the air is thinnest and the views are sharpest. Even further south are the two largest satellite galaxies of the Milky Way, the large and small clouds of Magellan. These are totally hidden from northern observers, but contain some of the most spectacular nebulae and open clusters in the entire sky. Northern observers find that their view is dominated by the outer regions of the Milky Way galaxy, and so they have a clearer view of the universe at large. They're not trying to look through the clouds of our own galaxy, so they get all the best galaxies and many wonderful globular clusters. Luckily, though, all of these different types of objects that we've talked about can be found all over the sky, so it's not like you have to travel to see a galaxy or an emission nebula. But the views do depend on where you are, and the objects are not distributed evenly or fairly. Because why would they be? So, I hope that clears things up. We've reached the end of this episode, so I guess all that's left to do is to wrap things up and let you know what the next episode is going to be about. If you found this science explainy but useful and want to hear more, please drop me a mail at podcast at urban-astronomer and let me know. I'd really like to know what you thought and if you enjoyed it and if you prefer to hear something else. I'd also really appreciate your support. So if you know anybody who likes podcasts and is interested in learning a bit more about space or science or South African astronomy, send them to urban-astronomer.com so that they can click on one of the many subscribe links and join this community. And if your friends don't know about podcasts, well, find the default podcast app on their phone, whether it's Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts, and show them how it all works. Get them subscribed and set things up so that it downloads new episodes automatically whenever they're on Wi-Fi, so that they never have to think about the show again. Just fire up the app and listen whenever it alerts them that a new episode has arrived. 
It's the easiest way, and in fact, that hands-off drip feed of quality content is part of why I got listening to podcasts in the first place. If you'd like to support me in more concrete ways, well, then check out the support page on urban-astronomer.com. The link is on the menu bar at the top, and you'll find out how to pledge a monthly donation on Patreon or how to send a once-off donation. Um, I'd like to offer merchandise in the future as well. You know, warm clothes that you can wear while observing maybe, or coffee mug, that sort of thing, so that you can get something for your money. Anyway, next episode is going to be another interview, and our guest is Dr. Imogen Whittam, formerly a researcher with the South African Radio Astronomical Observatory and currently working at Oxford. If all goes to plan, that episode should be available on the 21st of July, just in time for my daughter's 11th birthday. Until then, clear skies, and thank you for listening. Thank you.